Hello, this is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 67, and today I'm joined by Moya Bailey, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Africana Research Center here at Penn State. She received her doctorate from Emory University with a dissertation entitled Training to Treat, a Study of Representation uh, of Black Women Patients at Emory School of Medicine. She specializes in critical race, feminist, and disability studies, and is interested specifically in how race, gender, and sexuality are represented in in media and medicine. She's a digital humanist who contributes to a number of websites, including uh, Quirky Black Girls, the Crunk Feminist Collective, and she also co-curates for the Transform DH Initiative. You can find her on Twitter at MoyaAZB or at MoyaZB, and on her website, MoyaBailey.com. So we're particularly happy to have Moya here with us at Penn State as a postdoctoral fellow, uh, working also with our Humanities in the Digital Age Initiative. So Moya joins me today to talk about her recently published article in Palimpsest entitled Homo Latent Masculinity and Hip-Hop Culture. So welcome, Moya, to the Digital Dialogue. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you. So uh, you, you bring up a couple of, of, of terms in this, in this paper that I think it might be helpful to get clear about first, and then, uh, and then we can also talk a little bit about sort of the, the overarching sort of argument sure. and structure of, of the paper. But So let's start off with queer. Yes. Um, how do you use that term in the paper? And Yeah, so for me, I really love this definition of queer that comes from this zine towards the queerest insurrection. And the definition that, why I like this definition is that it really has an expansive idea of what queerness is. And so I'll just quote just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, queer is the abnormal, the strange, the dangerous. Queer involves our sexuality and our gender, but so much more. It is our desire and fantasies and more still. Queer is the cohesion of everything in conflict with the heterosexual capitalist world. Queer is a total rejection of the regime of the normal. So I really like that because for me, queer is really questioning what is normal in our society, what our assumptions are about how men and women should behave, even those categories of men and women. All of that is up in the air when you think about queerness or when I think about it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that that really comes out in the paper, I think, in an interesting way that I'd like to talk further about as we uh, progress because you have a kind of uh, critique of hip-hop culture, but you also sort of back off of a certain kind of critique of it because you don't want to have a kind of critique from this heteronormative you know, Absolute, standpoint. So absolutely. this line at the end of the, what you just quoted, queer is the total rejection of the regime of the normal. I think that's really interesting, particularly when you get into this combination that you mentioned at the end of the article about the combination of nihilism and community. Absolutely. So uh, let, let's talk about that a, in a minute because sure. I want to get also on the table this vocabulary of homo latent. Yes, absolutely. So homo latent is this term that I came up with when I was thinking about what was happening in hip-hop culture and what I was trying to name. So in general, people have been interested in queering different concepts within academia. So as queer theory, as queer studies has gotten a lot of attention, people are bringing a queer lens to lots of different aspects of our culture. And in thinking about that, I wanted to talk about some of the homosocial relationships that are happening in hip-hop culture, but queerness, as I've just described it, doesn't really seem to fit that. So I was trying to figure out how do we talk about the ways that men in particular 
masculine-identified people relate to each other within hip-hop. And so homolatent masculinity was an opportunity to do that. So connecting both the homo, the sense of same gender affiliation, and then latent, drawing on this Octavia Butler concept of latent, who are these people who have these powers, these abilities that don't get expressed. And because they have this sublimated energy, they end up doing these really violent, self-harming things to themselves and also kind of putting some of that onto other people. So you reference Octavia Butler's uh, book series Patternist in the, in the article. And so tell, tell us a little bit more about those, those characters. They're, I mean, sure. I, from what I could get from the article, you have um, a certain group of, of people who are active, activists or, yeah, right, who, right. who have sublimated you know, effectively and have control over some of exactly. their... Exactly. Um, we might say sort of have have matured, uh, you know, yes. according to uh, been socialized, maybe mm-hmm. is the way to put it, right? And then there are these late so-called latents who who haven't, and they have all these different kinds of energies that find expression in different ways. So yeah. tell me a little bit more about that. So what I love about Octavia Butler's work is that it is science fiction within our actual world. So we start in this uh, pre-colonial Africa, and we meet a woman who has this ability to survive for she's been living for generations and so she is somebody who represents this group of people who are developing alongside human beings who have these magical powers and she encounters a spirit who transforms into different or moves into different bodies because he's looking for a stable body to be in. Mm-hmm. And so he has established this whole breeding program with these extra human species trying to find a stable place for himself and in the and in making these other people in the process. And some of those other people that he's bred have this problem of not being able to come into their magical magical powers and he continues to use them to create this to try and find this body that he wants. But in the process, they have these really difficult ways of being in the world because they haven't expressed these magical mm-hmm. um, components of their of their humanity. Mm-hmm. So you you also articulate that in terms of a kind of pathology. I mean that this latent this these latent characters um, have pathology. Yes. Yeah, so the latent characters have a um, this sublimated magical potential that doesn't get realized and it's really hurting them and creating a lot of physical discomfort for them and for the other people that Mm -hmm. they encounter. Mm -hmm. So because they are in so much pain, they they tend to hurt other people Mm -hmm. and want other people to experience what they're experiencing. And so part of the argument is, at least as I can follow, is that this vocabulary is, is helping you understand some of the features of uh, hip-hop culture and a hyper-masculine hip-hop culture um, yeah. and some of the ways that not only the lyrics and the ways there, the ways, um, you know, there are enactments of violence and violent and misogynistic violence right. in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, when I think of homo latent, I think about the ways that there is something larger than the people themselves that is moving them towards this um, pathologized existence, right? So because they are part of Doro, the spirit character's um, breeding program, 
they are actually forced into this pathology in ways that they might not have been had they been left alone. Mm -hmm. So similarly, I mark some of the things that happen to young black men in particular in our contemporary society that create some of these pathological representations and these ways that black men are not um, positioned in our in our world in ways that are affirming or in line with a, a life that people might want to live. Right, right. Yeah. Well, if, uh, let me quote you back to yourself here on, on page 189 of, of the essay. You, you quote um, a character from, from uh, one of Butler's novels where she's saying about the latents, about the, these latent characters, no transition was supposed to come along uh, what uh, was supposed to come along and put them back in control of their lives. So uh, let alone they'd probably wind up in prison or on the, uh, or in the morgue before they were a lot older about mm-hmm. her, about her latent cousins. And then you add to that Butler's words could easily be applied to the realities of young black men in the contemporary United States. Mm-hmm. So this sort of mapping of the, that vocabulary on, onto this, but so how does that square with, or there's an inter- interesting interaction that's happening in the essay mm-hmm. between this notion of latency and queerness in mm-hmm. the sense that you, you're, you're having... Um, I mean, on one sense, there's something... Um, maybe you could put it this way, that, that queerness is a certain kind of form of latency. Mm. Or is it? Is that is that? I mean, there's a tension there because on the one hand you want to affirm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask it as a question: Is there a tension? There? <laughs> because on the one hand you want to affirm the the resistance to the normal right. that uh, queerness uh, embodies, yes. and and affirm that in a positive sense and recognize that as a valuable um, a valuable thing. Right. Uh, the crossing of boundaries, the blurring of boundaries, all exactly. kinds of, 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 of elements that I think have, can have positive and negative, mm-hmm. uh, implications. Uh, on the other hand, the, the latent, the latent characters in, in Butler's novels mm-hmm. and, and also let's, let's say the latency of, uh, or the homo latency of masculinity in hip hop culture right. has that, critique of the normal mm-hmm. in a way or do you see it as a hyper expression of a certain kind of normality well that's <laughs> i think actually probably the latter uh-huh. i do see that in wanting to name homo latent i want to distance this a little bit from queer because i yeah. do see a lot more potential there a mm-hmm. lot more um possibilities in queerness to undo what is normal. But what I see happening with homo latency is I see a script that has already been written for black men that I feel is people that becomes its own normal, right? Right. That there's a way that for straight identified black men, part of the language or part of showing that masculinity is often through expressing these, these traits that end up not actually affirming them as, as human beings or affirming right. other people around right. them. Yeah. And, and, and if I am following properly, the, the expression that comes out in lyrics and in videos and in, in gestures um, of this homolatency, homolatent masculinity, are um, hyper-expressions of... Uh, Contemporary ca- capitalistic 
culture. Absolutely. Right? It's sort of it's taking the objectification of women, for example, to a you know an extreme. Right. And I would say that it it actually follows in line with what we see in mainstream culture generally. Mm-hmm. There's a way that I think hip hop gets singled out because it is so easy to see in ways that we don't actually take the same sort of lens when we look at mainstream culture mm-hmm. and see how this applies in other places. So definitely, I see this as an extension of what's already happening in our culture. Yeah, the, a kind of um, the praise of, of pleasure, the praise of a certain kind of sexuality, praise of wealth. Exactly, right? exactly. And so there's a way that I think because black people have traditionally not had access to those things, that the praise of those things is particularly visible. There's mm-hmm. a hyper-visibility that happens mm-hmm. because people don't know, normally associate um, wealth, etc., with black communities. So when you see black people actually striving for those things, it becomes even more pathologized than it does in other groups of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, thinking recently about um, these two black teenagers who made purchases at Barney's New York and had um, the police stop them and question them about their purchases, you know, this this brings that to mind as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what are our expectations for black people as it relates to wealth and as it relates yeah, to capital? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, you bring up, and man, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the birthday song. Because, <laughs> I mean, when you even when you're bringing up Barney's, that, that, the lyric that you highlight about bury me in a, in a Gucci store or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what an interesting kind of video in the sense of um, uh, all of these tropes that you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? The hyper-objectification of women and uh, and the uh, fetishizing of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I mean, interestingly, that video also is, um, uh, is shot in a, what seems to be a relatively middle-class yeah. you know or mm-hmm. even lower class house right right and you right. have you know this guy drinking a 40 and yeah. you know it's kind of a so and yet when Kanye comes on and starts singing about he is also singing about you know you know wealth and, exactly. and all that right exactly. so yeah tell us a little bit about that sort of analysis of that sure of that sure well I mean I definitely feel like there's a hipster aesthetic that's happening so when we think about like white Williamsburg culture right. in, in New York that that's People who have a lot of money may be downplaying how much money they have. Mm-hmm. That's definitely part of it. And I also think about just that for people of color, having access to these markers of wealth is a way to afford yourself a position in our world that you might not be afforded otherwise if people don't think you have money. So I think about um, a recent article by fellow digital human humanist, um, Tressie McCotton, um, who talked about specifically what it means for poor black people to buy some of these markers of wealth, because there's a way that people treat you differently if they think you have money. Mm -hmm. So putting on these, um, markers of capitalism of success can actually position you differently in the world. So there is some, understanding of why those things matter. And I also think that this hyper-consumerism, all of these things, is is one of those things that's linked to depression. So when we think about how people are managing, you know, this contemporary capitalist moment, 
one of those ways, one of the ways that you prove your citizenship is through is through spending, yeah. is through buying lots right. of things. So, I mean, uh, one of the things I really like about the essay is that you you refuse to kind of paint with a broad brush. You actually get down into the nitty gritty of analyzing some videos and speaking about specific artists. Right. Um, because I think obviously, you know, there's so much going on in hip hop culture as exactly. a term that, you know, it's, it's, you know, rich in terms of, you know, the diversity of things going on, people being, uh, you know, responding to a certain vision of hip hop culture and, mm-hmm. and developing things in their own way. And so uh, one of the things I wondered about was uh, the, um, the, the, the ways in which by, um, taking certain kind of capitalistic um, hegemonic forces to extremes, as you see in a, something like the birthday song. Mm-hmm. Is there an irony in there? I mean, is there is there a kind of performative dimension that is so over the top that it's actually sort of showing so clearly this is, this is the, uh, you know, this is the degree to which this world is coming. I mean, you, you, mm-hmm. you, your interpretation and part of it is... is that there's there are like with for example Little Wayne to take a different example mm-hmm. there are expressions of depression mm-hmm. in that and there are and I would like to hear more about that but mm-hmm. but in the birthday song or with Little Wayne do you see aspects of irony in the sense of of being of of trying to take this to such an extreme that you're actually really critical of it yeah well I definitely do see mm-hmm. that I I think that. One of the greatest ironies of it all is for all of the wealth, for all of the visual wealth that some of these rappers have, it compares very little to the wealth of the executives of these, you know, multinational music Mm -hmm. corporations who actually sign their checks. You know, so so those people who actually have most of the money are not part of the conversation generally when we talk about some of the materialism that we see in the music industry. So for me, that that is definitely something that I think about. But for what's on screen, that's harder that's harder for yeah. people to make those those particular connections. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about Little Wayne and, yeah. and that so so tell tell us a little bit about how Little Wayne fits into the essay. Sure. Mm-hmm. So when I was thinking about Wayne, I was thinking about him as a one of these homo latent figures, one of these people who fits this um, persona of re- uh, disrupting the normal, disrupting norms, but also playing into some of these hyper normalizations around gender. Mm-hmm. So Wayne is very. He's very much a man, right, <laughs> and, right. and that's what he talks about a lot. And part of the ways that he signals his masculinity is through his heterosexuality, through his relationships with women. And I also think he's an interesting person because he troubles some of the tropes that have been in hip-hop before. So he talks a lot about oral sex, which is something mm-hmm. that other hip-hop artists had been reluctant to do, although that's, that's definitely changed now. Mm-hmm. I also think that... His uh, pitch- you're arguing that it's changed in part because of him. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that the way that Wayne, Wayne is also on at this particular moment when I was thinking about him, he was on just about every <laughs> song you could think of. He was crossing genres. So he is a figure who really 
embodies this this idea of homo latent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yet he ha- he retains this with particularly with regard to his naming this childhood childlike exactly, and, and you sort of see you you at least are at least gestured to the idea that there is some struggling with his his continuing aging exactly and how would you maintain this exactly. So within hip hop, this is this is uh, the challenge. Hip hop is generally a young man's art form, so as rappers get older it becomes much more difficult to kind of stay relevant mm-hmm. to to hip-hop culture. And I think but that... But relevant, has, it has to be aimed at that sort of demographic, that young male, black male demographic. Right, and not just black male. I male, mean, yeah, exactly, no, absolutely. Exactly. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah, being here and just driving around and seeing, seeing students, it's definitely right. across the board. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there's the. I mean, I sensed also in the essay um, your your own sort of coming to terms with um, something. I think a lot of us who listen to hip hop music struggle with is okay, a real attraction to the music, the beats, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the way it sounds, the the way it even even just viscerally makes you feel in terms yeah. of energizing, and yet. Yeah. The symbolic dimensions, the the, the lyrics, exactly. Um, you know, there are, are a number of. It, it's it's interesting as a as a father. Like I really enjoy um, some of these this music, but mm-hmm. I and I, my daughters and I like to share music a lot. But you know, I can't do it. Right. You know, I just want. I mean, right. Yeah. But. Uh, especially since my younger daughter is like a huge mimic, so as as <laughs> we would be like talking about bitches and hoes you know, the whole time. So, but but I mean, do you, is that part of, part of this essay? Or am I right in hearing your own sort of grappling with, you know, your love of this music? Or, you yeah, know, and, yeah. And what it is? Yeah, I think that this is kind of the the struggle of being human in yeah. in our world right. in a in a capitalist misogynistic like patriarchal all of these things mm-hmm. existence there are things that you really love but have all of these elements because that's the world that we live in and i think for individual people are making their own decisions about how much of that they can engage and how much they can't i think what's unfortunate though is that the way these images move is that they become representations that people use to stand in for real people. Mm-hmm. So the the challenge is how do we how do images, how do representations sometimes supersede people's actual knowledge of people that they know and how they interact with people. So part of part of this for me is teasing out the ways that men in hip hop culture, men in our world are understanding their relationship to women, understanding their relationship to sexuality generally, and mm-hmm. how that impacts different groups of people as a result. Right. Um, so, as the essay progresses, you get sort of a little Wayne, and you sort of um, are saying uh, and arguing that there's this nihilistic dimension, and it's kind of, and, and yet. Um, there is a kind of critical, there is a critique of society mm-hmm. at work in his work. Um, but then you move to the um, example of law, the Lost Boys mm-hmm. uh, and to articulate a much more uh, positive kind of nihilism, if I can even <laughs> <Yeah>. say that. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, actually, I thought you had a nice... 
you, a, a nice way. Well, you said the, the Lost Boys, their name, and they embrace queerness and are actively challenging standards of what hip-hop can be. Yeah. So talk a little bit about them. Sure. So the Lost Boys are made up of a duo of um, students who went to Overland College and... Um, AO Awkward Original and Be Steady. And so they create I love it. <laughs> <laughs> they create a really fun kind of a pair I they would even say maybe par- parodies and just kind of lighthearted yeah. hip hop music and draw on their experiences in women's studies classes, some of the books that they've read and their yeah, own. That, uh, the one that you uh, mentioned, the the uh, the one video that you mentioned, stra- I guess Strap Step, maybe it was. Uh-huh. Uh Is no, maybe it wasn't Strap Step. The, uh, the reading rainbow. Yeah, or? Exactly, the, the, exactly. They start off the video with them reading. Yeah. You know these real books on exactly. feminist theory and exactly. all that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So, oh, sincerely. Sincerely. That's mm-hmm. What, yeah. mm-hmm. So, so those. Those really give an opportunity of showing what happens when people have access to information that can shape the way that the conversation that they want to have in their music, uh, what's possible when you have access to information beyond one particular scope or frame. Mm -hmm. So I love how they bring in their education into what what they're talking about and what's valuable to them as artists. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it's clear from watching that that video and sincerely is that they they're having fun. They're not taking themselves too seriously. Of course, there also is the flavor of they're not being hyperly produced. They're not uh, exactly. I, I don't know how big they are. <laughs> right? no. Not big, maybe. No. At all. And they, right. I not exactly. So, and that could be part of the. Part of the point that you're making, too. Absolutely. And I I think that you see now a lot of these hip-hop artists talking about pressure from the executives to kind of maintain this certain uh, persona in public. So T.I., for example, has done some reality television around his life as a as a father, him raising his children, and has talked publicly about feeling some backlash from his record company that he's got this softer image now as opposed to his earlier albums where he had a much more gruff exterior. Well, I mean, so that's interesting because even in my own comment about my daughters, I mean, there is something about this heteronormative family having (laughs) aspects of our lives that causes us to have a different kind of relationship to these cultural phenomena that you see that you've been pointing to. Yeah, and I do think that there's something, there's definitely something there about what parenting, what um, people's understanding of this as a job, as a, as work. Right. I mean, oftentimes rappers will say, well, this is my job. Like, this yeah. is just the music. This has no bearing on how I actually treat women in my daily life. This has no bearing on who I am as a father, etc. And I definitely think that that's true. I think that people are just trying to make money with the consequences of those representations um, definitely exist outside of just a financial interaction for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I guess, so this is where I would push a little bit because I'm, I'm finding myself in a kind of tension and that's actually probably a good thing because mm-hmm. on the one hand, as as aesthetic performances, mm-hmm. uh, something like 
uh, the, the birthday song mm-hmm. um, or other you know uh, other songs that you've mentioned um, can be seen as hyperly critical mm-hmm. of a certain kind of normative uh, heterosexuality mm-hmm. uh, and capitalism mm-hmm. um, and can and could theoretically uh, be um, uh, or help cultivate in us an appreciation for um, the these um, these ways of domination mm-hmm. um, and even a kind of critical distance mm-hmm. right because they're so, they're sho- they're so shocking in a way that they force you to reflect upon well you know how are women being treated in this mm-hmm. video as an expression of the wider society mm-hmm. um, on, and, but I see the sort of positive and negative side of that, and it goes back to the points we were making earlier about the vocabulary of queerness versus homo latency. So mm-hmm. that, from my, it seems like you want for queerness to signal the positive aspects of transcending boundaries, and not the not not positive is maybe that I, I don't. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. interested in how sure, you would formulate sure. it. Is it liberatory? Is it? You mentioned the transformative possibilities. At yes. One point. Yes. Um, and of course, you know where the transformative possibilities of a song like "Birthday Song." Mm-hmm. I think there are transformative possibilities Absolutely. that open up it, but only if you see this as not serious, exactly, right? as an expression of the hyper-masculinity and yeah. capitalistic view of society. Absolutely. And I think, I totally agree. I think anything can be transformative depending on your lens and your perspective. So that is that is definitely true. I think what happens, though, is hip-hop in particular gets pigeonholed, and I think that there's a way that race and class impact the way that people afford or lend these transformative possibilities to certain to certain art forms. Mm-hmm. So there's a way that that generous reading doesn't happen, I think, with birthday song. And it becomes people's understanding and also stands in for people's understanding of marginalized people, mm-hmm. women, particularly women of color. Well, I think one of the values of having uh, an essay like this one is that it brings your understanding and your consciousness of feminist theory, queer theory, to bear on on something like birthday song, so that you're, sure. you're able to read this, read the music, read read the video, and read the music in in such a way that you can show both sides, show exactly. this, this potentially transformative side, although um, you you have a kind of critical distance. And actually, that's something I want to put you on a little bit, because you take uh, Christopher Tyson to task for his, um, one might say, kind of paternalistic <laughs> critique of hip-hop culture, saying, when he says that it, it should be, it, you know, it should be used for more uh, so for raising consciousness for social organization, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you quickly distance yourself. I have no design, such design for hip hop. So yeah, talk a little bit about sure. that. Sure. Well, I I think there is value in showing where we are, right? So right. in the way that you've talked about the ironies of what's happening in mainstream culture, there are ways that hip hop brings this lens that holds this mirror up to society and says, "This is what we're doing," and I don't necessarily want to get rid of that. What I want to challenge, though, is the thinking and the assumptions that people have 
about who gets represented in hip-hop and who actually has a voice. Because so much of hip-hop is produced and created by men, there aren't really a, there's not really a lot of room for women to tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is it becomes a man's perspective on what, on what women are feeling or what women are thinking, which plays into all of these ideas that we have about how men and women should behave generally. Mm-hmm. So for me, the, the normalizing effect that happens in hip-hop culture is what I'm questioning. Not so much the music itself, but how do we create opportunities for people to reflect and see some of these tensions Mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily apparent if people um, want to create a flattened version. Because there's something about positive images, too, that can be really reductive. And generally, when people think of positive images, it doesn't necessarily include queerness. It doesn't necessarily include... Um, sex positivity in the most radical of senses, uh, those kinds of things are not necessarily part of the program. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, let me read another uh, passage to you, uh, back to you of your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one, page 196 where you say, um, in response to the, the Tyson critique, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is a really important um, uh, an important point. When we instruct the next generation that our critiques are leveled at language choice as opposed to the ideology that informs the use of bitch and hoe or the infrastructure that supports their negative impact on marginal subjects, we remain locked in a reactionary dynamic that does not ha- does not transform conditions. Absolutely. And I thought that was a really nice articulation of how it's so easy for us to get caught caught up in reactionary a lot a reactionary logic or an economy of reactions absolutely that fail to transform conditions but of course that in talking about transformed conditions and relatedly as you end the essay with this notion of nihilism and community together um there still is a, a positive moment here what mm-hmm. right so it's it's not Okay, the transgression of boundaries. Yes. Fine. Yes. Yeah. Good. So maybe we're getting at the trying to get the contours of what queerness really means. Yeah. Right? So yes, trans- transgression of boundaries, but not just that. It's not exactly. just transgression for transgression's sake. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And this is also why I differentiate homolatent from queerness. Okay. Because when I see homolatent, I want to talk about it with people. I want to use it for people who do identify as straight, as people who do identify in some ways with the quote-unquote regime of the normal in in some particular ways. Right. And by attaching queerness to that, I think it it flattens what queerness can actually be and where queerness is actually trying to go, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily down this normative path. And so what I want when I think about the potentials of nihilism, what happens when people start to question, is there's a real... Um, willingness to take risks sometimes because of that. And that risk can can look a number of different ways. But there's potential when you feel like there is, you have nothing left to lose. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, you cash that out in the essay with, with regard to not caring. Exactly. And you emphasize the fact that, well, this articulation, I don't care, is really masking a deeper kind of caring I care so much that I, that if I started really caring, <laughs> if and I let that in, it would kill exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I think about so much how our society has 
creates these ways where we have to not care, you know, just in general to function in our world. I mean, you can't think about homelessness too much because, I mean, it, it doesn't really make logical sense, right? Like right. people don't have money, so therefore they, they're not entitled to a house. But to function in our world and to move through the day, you kind of have to disassociate, cut those particular things off. And so I see people saying, I don't care as, as a way of performing that, as mm-hmm. a way of saying, this is too much. I, as an individual person, can't take this on. I don't have the solutions for this, so I would rather not think about it, which to me opens up the other conversation, which is it's going to take mass action. It's going to take multiple people being involved to kind of correct some of these larger societal things. Mm -hmm. But so much of our world is based on being an individual. So I think it's, it's harder to get to those solutions. Yeah. So then that, that brings us to this whole question. I mean, this whole issue of nihilism and community. Yes. And you say nihilism and community can equal a win on page 197. <laughs> you know, and, and then you get into uh, your kind of, there's an autobiographical dimension to the whole essay that I actually want to ask you about also. Sure. Um, you know, early on you say, I identify as queer and you're embracing this vocabulary of definition of queerness that you're um, articulating, and then at the end you get back to you know your own de- jaded alcoholic, your own uh, disassociative reaction mm-hmm. to sexist hip hop uh, culture and, and music. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask this question this way: uh, Let's talk a little bit about the performative aspect of this essay. Yes, and how what this what what kind of a document this is, sure. and, how, and how and and what why do you write? Why do I write? <laughs> oh, I write to, I write to to further understand myself and to make connections with people. Mm-hmm. So I write to be a part of a conversation that hopefully opens up new opportunities and new ways of thinking that gets us closer to the world that we want. I think there's something really powerful about reading things and being in communication with other scholars. So when I write, I love, um, I really love citing things because it makes me feel like I'm having a conversation with other authors and other people who have been thinking about these ideas critically. And in our world where we are so individual, there's something about writing and trying to share your words that to me gets us back to this question of what community is and what mm-hmm. community can look like. Yeah. Well, that, that is a, I, I love that answer. <laughs> um, but, or and. <laughs> yes. Um, you are also a young scholar. Mm-hmm. You're also in a postdoc here at Penn State. Yes. Uh, we, You and I have talked already a little bit about, you know, your advances in digital humanities mm-hmm. and, try, and struggles to try to make sure that your digital humanities work is um, enriching your scholarship. Absolutely. You, obviously, we're all you're in, one of the reasons we're here, and you know we're working together is to help you build your scholarly reputation. Absolutely. And, your, um, and publishing in a journal is part of that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, I think I mean if you know when I think about why I write, I I think my noble self is is resonates with what you're saying. <laughs> I write, and that's why partly why I'm you know interested in blogging and all of that. Yeah. But I also know that I have had to write. 
for publications, for Absolutely. specific kinds of journals, to get the credentials I need to get into the system, sure. to be successful in the system. Sure. So how does that fit into that? And how do you, you know, how do you um, navigate that as somebody who identifies as queer and wants to theorize what mm-hmm. it means to be queer sure. at the same time as you want a good job, we all yes. do, which is yes. not, no, yeah, not a bad absolutely. thing to want, right? Absolutely. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I've been in women's studies. So it's like the the queerness hasn't been an issue for me in terms of the kinds of jobs that I imagine. Like it's something that I bring right. to the table. So in terms of my understanding of myself and the kinds of academic positions that I would want, like that aspect of my personality, of my humanity will always be on the table in terms of what kind of life I imagine myself crafting as a scholar, what kind of conversations I want to be in within scholarly community and outside. So that for me is is part of it. And I think women's studies as a field is definitely becoming, not becoming, is much more um, traditional in the academic marketplace than it has been. So NWSA is now part of the job cycle now, like the conference moved. So I think it's all of those things are changing Mm -hmm. in terms of how even women's studies is looked at in the academy. So I agree. And I mean, that's one of the things that um, as somebody who is now part of the power structure, (laughs) um, it makes me happy to hear to to know that. and, And I try to advocate for exactly that happening. And yet, there's a normalization that happens. Absolutely. Right? Is there a, I mean, you know, is making room for uh, queer studies, the, um, does it necessitate the um, de-queering of it in the, yes. in the technical sense that you're talking oh, about, right? Yeah, so that's boundaries a great question. Aren't, you know, as, so what, do, what does one lose by becoming part of an institution? I mean, I, I'm really interested. No, I think that's an excellent question. I think that's something I still struggle with as somebody who also identifies as an activist, as yeah. somebody who sees myself connect, uh, tied to social justice communities. Right. There's a way that professionalization can sometimes move you a, a bit away from that, that element. And I think for women's studies, that question is still being hashed out. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you acknowledge the real activism and work that students, students in particular, did to create your position in the academy, right? right? And how do you hold that in connection with your connection to social justice movements outside right. of the academy now? That tension remains, but it's one that I am very committed to yeah. trying to figure out in my own scholar scholarly trajectory. Yeah, and I think maybe there's a maybe there's a lesson to be learned from queer theory itself with regard to the tension. I mean, celebrating the tension. Because exactly. there is there is not um I mean, I think part of being um part of transforming a community means being part of that community. Absolutely. And you have to on the one hand play the certain game that the community expects that gives you credentials to be um, designated as a success there. Yes. And I would say, too, that part of the lesson, too, is one of community as well. So that there are 
multiple players who don't necessarily have to play the same role, right? So that there is room for people who understand themselves um, in a hybrid space between the academy and social justice, et cetera, and people who understand themselves firmly entrenched in either right. one of those camps. And I think it takes all kinds for the kind of world that we want yeah. to create. Well, and I think, I mean, one of the things that's uh, great about what you've been doing with your work on the web and with your digital humanities work is that um, the way I see how you're kind of developing yourself as a scholar is it's kind of a both-end uh, mm-hmm. method. You, you are doing the things you need to do to uh, have publications that will give you credentials on the job market and, exactly. and elsewhere. Uh, but you continue to do the activist work that you're doing, the community building on the web with your various websites mm-hmm. um, that allows you to uh, not give up mm-hmm. your the integrity of your vision of yourself right. and of your scholarship. Absolutely. As you, even as you um, make your way into an institutional setting. Sure. Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that I think is going to be critical for um, the ongoing success of, of higher education institutions and even professions, um, professional disciplines, like, and I'm thinking myself particularly about the discipline like philosophy, which sure. is obviously dear to my heart, um, but also one that I struggle a great deal with because of its, you know, uh, historical tendency to be inward facing and to be exclusionary and to be very white and male. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yet we start to see that um, breaking down in really interesting and good ways and, um, and and also breaking down that boundary between the academy and the public. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so the, the question is what can, I mean, institutions like a place like Penn State or higher education institutions have to be able to um, um, support and cultivate the kind of scholarship that you're trying to embody. Yes. That had that that yes meets the you know standard traditional mm-hmm. uh, criteria of what rigorous scholarship is and publishing books and articles and that sort right. of thing, but also recognizes that there are a, a lot of other modes of communication. Some of them also very scholarly. Exactly. I mean, as you know, you write in blog posts and things there. And cite in in those contexts too, sure. linked to other people. You're engaged in the kind of scholarly activity. Absolutely, and I think showing that there are these divisions between the academy and the outside world right. <laughs> <laughs> need to be more porous and more, um, mm, mm, yeah, more porous, so yeah. that there's more opportunity for. Permeable was the word. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that yeah. there's room for the outside to influence the academy and the academy yeah. to influence outside. I mean, ultimately, I do think that was the idea when we think of you know the history of what scholarship was supposed to do. Yeah. How do we improve upon the human condition? And that means a lot of people need to be at that table having that conversation. Absolutely. And you put it nicely at the end of the uh, essay about the role of community giving us access to the possible. Yes. And I see exactly that as uh, as being the virtue of uh, doing the kind of scholarship you're trying to do, uh, being very uh, activist-focused, but also uh, focusing on cultural phenomena, uncovering and showing what theory can do to give us a deeper understanding of what these the, what these phenomena are showing us about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Just so that we don't dismiss things and we don't 
one, write people off. So in thinking about this homolatent masculinity, where does this misogyny come from? Where do these um, ideas about wealth and patriarchal power and masculinity, how are those things embedded in our culture in ways that actually provide uh, some signal, some kind of connection to the power structure that, as we understand it, right? So these are tools that people are using to advance themselves in our society. So what does that say about our society, Absolutely. that these are tools that people use? Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Well, uh, it has been uh, great to have you on the Digital Dialogue, and even better to have you here at Penn State <laughs> for the year and hopefully longer. Oh, thank so, you so much. Thank you for being on the Digital Dialogue. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. This has been the Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of The Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been The Digital Dialogue.